You're listening to the RUF at UT podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. We have been trying to answer the question in RUF, what is the church? Which I know for some of you may be just an unpopular question or just a question that's uninteresting to you. But wherever this question lands with you, the way that we've been trying to answer the question is, uh, I think it's really interesting. The Bible gives us lots of different pictures about what the church is. And so it's kind of like the Bible has its own built-in Instagram account. And we've been looking at different images that the Bible gives to describe and capture what the church is. So a couple weeks ago, we saw that the church is a whore, which was fun to say 8,000 times that night. Um, Then we saw the church as a body. And last week, we saw that the church was pictured as a city. And tonight, what I want to do is try to answer the question, like, what makes for a good church? Like, how do you know a church is good? Uh, And practically speaking, how do you pick one? Especially in a place like Knoxville where there's 8 million churches everywhere. How do you even begin making that choice? Uh, so to try to answer that question, I want to look at one more image with you, or I guess just the next image, uh, which is the image of the church pictured as a temple. Remember, it's not the church building that's pictured as a temple. It's like the people, the community of faith, Christians that are described and captured and imaged as a temple. So let me read it. First Peter chapter 2, verse 4 reads this. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, quote, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have mercy received mercy. This is God's word. Let me pray and then we will try to consider that together. So let's pray. Father, thank you again uh, for this time together. Um, Again, just reminding ourselves that uh, we find ourselves in lots of different places tonight. Believing, unbelieving, uh, joyful, uh, despondent, doubting, doubting. Uh, hungry to hear from you and connect with you, um, 
confused and uh, angry or bitter over just the state of things. And so, Father, however we find ourselves, please meet us, teach us, lead us by your spirit into the truth. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Uh, There's an author that I like to read. Uh, Her name is Anne Lamott. Maybe you've read her, heard from her. But she um, has a really interesting story in one of her books where she catalogs and kind of describes her her first-hand account of how she became a Christian. She has a really interesting story. She was a single mother, uh, drug addict, living in San Francisco. And every Sunday morning, she would go downtown to this little flea market area. And there was this church on the corner called St. Andrew's that she would always hear music coming out of. And so one Sunday morning, she just decides, I'm going to go in there and check it out. And here's what she says. Here's kind of, uh, I'll just read you a a brief excerpt from her book. She says this, I went back to St. Andrew's about once a month. No one tried to con me into sitting down or staying. I always left before the sermon. I loved singing, even about Jesus, but I just didn't want to be preached at about him. To me, Jesus made about as much sense as Scientology. But the church smelled wonderful, like the air had nourishment in it, or like it was composed of those people's exhalations of warmth and faith and peace. There were always children running around or being embraced. Every other week they brought huge tubs of great food for the homeless families living at the shelter near the canal to the north. I loved this. But it was the singing that pulled me in and split me wide open. Eventually, a few months after I started coming, I took a seat in one of the folding chairs off by myself. And then the singing enveloped me. It was fury and resonant coming from everyone's very heart. There was no sense of performance or judgment, only that the music was breath and food. Here's the last line. I think this is an amazing sentence. Something inside me that was stiff and rotting would feel soft and tender. Isn't that an amazing description? And so you kind of hear her account of her experience with the church, with this community, and you think, man, that's the way it should be. Like, that's the way it should be to have uh, this person who was so drawn in, so pulled into this attractive, warm, inviting, vibrant community that she, her life was changed. She met Jesus. She was transformed. Healing was brought into her life as a result of being a part of this community. And I don't know, for as many people in this room right now, maybe you've had that experience where you've kind of wandered into a church or your friend brought you and you just felt like something is unique about this this people group. Or maybe you had the exact opposite experience where you kind of checked out a church or you checked out a thing like RUF and you're like, this is the exact opposite of anything healing to me. I I don't know. Whatever your experience is, I'm at least curious to ask the question tonight, what is it that could make a church so attractive, so healing, so welcoming that it could actually change somebody's life? And to get at that question, I want, I want to just look at that idea. It's a big buzzword these days, but I want to look at that idea of community, specifically Christian community. And we'll look at this from three different angles. Let's look at the practice of community, then the proclamation of community, and then the power for community. Bunch of P's, 
because it's that time of the semester. The practice of community, the proclamation of community, the power for community. I have no idea what that just meant, but okay. Let's look first at the practice of community. Uh, what does community look like in practice? Look back at verse 5 of 1 Peter 2. It says this, You yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. It's a really weird image. It's a funky image, but Peter is saying, I want you to imagine each individual Christian as like a brick, only, only you're alive. You're, you're a living stone that God takes all these stones and these bricks and he builds them together to create this temple where God Dwells. Now, I get this idea from um, Tim Keller, but he gives you this image. He says, okay, picture, there's no, there's no brick walls in here. If you picture a brick wall, you've, you've seen a brick wall before, you can imagine it. If you picture a bunch of bricks on a wall, you see that, here's this one brick that's you connected to this wall. That if you think about it, there are all these bricks above you that are resting their weight upon you. So if you shake, they shake. If you get taken out, they collapse. And you have all of these bricks beneath you that are relying on you. So they shake, you shake. They get pulled out, you collapse. And it's this picture, First Peter gives you this picture of the Christian community as this interdependent, interlocking, deep community. And the question I want to ask you is this. If you're a Christian here tonight, is that your experience? Are you so connected to the lives of the people of your local church that if you were to be pulled out, the whole like it would collapse? Or maybe if we could ask it in a more broad sense, do you relate to anybody that way? Does anybody have that sort of intimate access and connection with you where if you got pulled out of your friend group, things would kind of fall apart because you're not in it, because you're not so intimately interlocked and connected to it? That's the picture that the Bible gives us of how thick and deep and connected community is intended to be. But here's the question. If your answer is no to those questions, then what could it begin to look like for you to develop that kind of community, that interlocking, interdependent, tight relationship thing? In other words, what does the practice of, hello, of community look like? Here's what the practice could begin to look like. It's very simple. The way that you form that kind of relational network, two words. Very simple. You show up. That's it. That's the practice of Christian community, showing up. I'll give you two quick verses real quick to support that statement. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 says this. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The Bible is saying don't get into the habit of neglecting to meet together as a local church. In other words, the Bible is saying regularly, habitually, Meet together. Just show up. Just be together. Show up. That's, that's the first thing I want you to see. Second verse is this. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. 
It's talking about Jesus. It says, Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. This is saying that Jesus himself had established a weekly custom of going to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Every week, Jesus said, I think it's important for me to show up to the local church. Jesus felt that way. We just saw in the Hebrew, Hebrews passage that the early church felt that way. I've told you this before as we've kind of gone through this series. The Bible has no category for an individual Christian that claims to follow Jesus but is disconnected from a local expression of the body of Christ. There is no biblical category of just you and Jesus by yourself. It's always together. And here's the question. Um, Are you showing up? This is not rocket science, but the, the, the practice of Christian community is simply showing up, which might mean that you have to change the way that you think about your Saturday nights. Maybe it's like, oh, I'm not a morning person. I cannot do Sunday mornings. I get it. Go to bed earlier on Saturday. Or find a church that maybe meets later on Sunday. I don't know. But there's something about simply showing up that is the beginning steps of creating that interdependent, interlocking relationship. You can't have community if you're not there. And you can't have deep, thick relational community unless you're showing up regularly, habitually, over and over, over the course of a lot of time. That's the practice of Christian community. Very simple, not rocket science, but the Bible seems to say, you just show up. Now, here's the question. Why, though? Is there a bigger point, or is it just feel guilty because you're not going to church? Or feel really good about yourself because you are? Is there a bigger point? Yes. Here's the bigger point. When the church gathers together, it itself is a proclamation to the watching world of the grace and the excellencies of God. What does that mean? Well... Let's look at that second idea, the proclamation of community. Here's where I get this from. Look at verse 9. It says this, but you, and that word you is plural there. It's not you individually. It's y'all collectively. But y'all are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that y'all may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Here's what this is saying. The gathered church is itself a proclamation, a demonstration, a way of communicating to the watching world of the excellencies and the majesty of God. When you and I hear the word witness, that's kind of a Christian Christianese word that we instinctively just think of our individual responsibility of telling other people about Jesus. And that's partly what that word means, but there's so much more to that word witness. When the church gathers together, it itself, just by gathering together, no words necessary, is a proclamation of the excellencies of God. And here's why. Because the type of people that are getting together are the type of people that would never, ever get together out in the real world. The church is a gathering of people that are getting along with each other, loving each other, serving each other, that would never, ever get together in the real world. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, Some of y'all may have heard the name John Perkins. He's an author um, um, 
uh, a really famous thinker in the area of kind of race relations and social justice. He, he was an African-American man that grew up in the deep south, Mississippi, in the 40s and the 50s. And he grew up in, of course, a uh, time when racial tensions were extremely high. Uh, his brother was shot and killed by the town marshal of the town that he grew up in. And he was so... Uh, scared, so angry, and had so much hate in, he, in his heart. He's like, I've got to get out of Mississippi. And so he uh, went to California. And at the height of his anger and hatred um, for kind of the, the white culture in which he was a part of growing up, he met Jesus. And his life was really changed. And Jesus directed him and guided him and urged him to go back to Mississippi to begin working on healing of that place. So I guess kind of against what he would normally want to do, he went back to Mississippi to begin uh, cultivating love in a context in which there was real hatred. And so he started, uh, he started up Bible clubs, uh, he, he developed uh, uh, health centers and housing developments, and while he was doing these outdoor Bible clubs with children, um, white men would drive by in their trucks just showing off their shotguns, just letting him know, uh, we're not a fan that you're here. Uh, at one point, uh, John Perkins was abducted, he was tortured, he was beaten, uh, they, they rammed a fork up his nose at one point to torture him. And in the midst of that sort of barbaric treatment and hostility and hatred, he stayed and continued to work for healing, for peace, for reconciliation. And along the way, he became friends with this guy named Thomas Terrence, who began to help him in his efforts uh, to bring healing and peace into this part of the South. And what you need to know about Thomas Terrence is that Thomas was white and that Thomas for years had been involved with the KKK. And he too had found Jesus. And so here are these two guys that are now friends and working towards a common mission. And I want you to think about this. How in the world do you get a white, upper-class KKK enthusiast together with a uh, lower class black sharecropper in the deep south Mississippi in, 1960, in the 60s. How do these people find each other? It is only by the grace and the mercy and the brilliance of God to bring this friendship together. And that itself, that friendship, that relationship is itself a proclamation of the excellencies and the beauty and the majesty of God. Because can you imagine going into a church and seeing John Perkins and Thomas Terrence sitting next to each other in the pew, singing with each other, sharing communion with each other. People would look at that and say, I have no category for this. And that's the point. Look, as you know, we are living in a moment, a cultural moment in which tensions are high. And we are all kinds of divided. We are divided racially. We are divided uh, politically. And it is the natural instinct of the human heart to just get with your tribe and feel safe and protected and throw grenades and bricks at the other side, the other opposing side. How in the world do you ever bring these groups of people together? Well... Uh, it is completely natural 
to do that. But the, the church is a community that is supernatural. People that get together that would never get together out in the real world. And so when you go into a church, theoretically, you should be able to see people getting along with each other that have nothing in common. You should see people that uh, are urban and suburban with each other in the same church, rich and poor in the same church, Democrats and Republicans, black and white, Asian and Latino, uh, government-schooled and homeschooled, athletes and mathletes, all together in the same community. People that would never get along out in the real world, and yet in the church they are united together in a common worship, in a common fellowship, in a common mission. All united under Jesus himself. That itself is the proclamation to the world. And here's the thing, you can't do that by yourself. You can't make that kind of proclamation if it's just you and Jesus. That's why you have to be a part of a church. If you're a Christian, your witness is seriously impaired if it's just you and Jesus. Or if your community is just a bunch of people of your same age that look exactly like you and have the same skin color as you and vote the same way as you. Everyone does that. That's not a proclamation of anything other than you just like being around people that look like you. It's a proclamation to the world when you have fellowship and you are united to people that you probably have nothing else in common other than you both love Jesus. But here's the question. How does that happen? Because, like I said, there's nothing natural about this instinct. We all just want to get together with people that look like us. So... Where do you get the power for this kind of community? And that's the last thing I want to look at with you. If you go back to this image of us as individual bricks that are making together this temple, what was the point of the temple? The temple was where God dwelled. The temple was the very presence of God with us on this on like a geographic spot, God with us here. And so it's really interesting when Jesus shows up in the New Testament, The language that the Bible uses to describe him is that word Emmanuel, which is the Hebrew word for God with us. The Bible is very clear. Jesus is the very presence of God with us now. In fact, there's this kind of somewhat funny story in John chapter 2. Jesus is walking around and he essentially says to these people that he's hanging out with, oh yeah, by the way, I'm the temple. And they're very confused by this because there's actually a giant temple right behind him when he says it. And he's like, no, that's not the real temple. It's me. I'm the real temple. In other words, he's saying, you have the fullness of God with you now because I am with you now. So it's very interesting. uh, At the very end of his life in Matthew 27, as he is strung up and dying on a cross, the words that he cries out at the end of his life are this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that word forsaken is really interesting. It basically means to abandon. He's on the cross and he says, God, why are you abandoning me? And then just a few verses later in Matthew 27, it's very interesting. There was this giant curtain to the temple that gets torn, as soon as Jesus breathes his last, it gets torn from top to bottom. And so you have the sequence. Jesus saying, God, why have you forsaken me? And the temple gets torn, which was this boundary that kept people from experiencing the immediate presence of God. What is happening in these two different moments? 
Jesus is making it very clear that he is trading places with you. He is experiencing God abandoning him, forsaking him on the cross so that you and I could have access to the very presence of God. Jesus is abandoned by the Father so that you can be with the Father. And what that means now is that anybody can come and have access to the very presence of God. How do you get it, though? Well, look at 1 Peter 2, 4. It says this, As you come to him, the living stone, you come to Jesus. You look at him and you say, I am a train wreck. I am a mess. I have nothing But I'm going to cast all my hopes and dreams on you and you alone. That is what faith is. Look at verse 6. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 7. The honor is for you who believe. It's Jesus plus nothing. You come to Jesus and him alone and he gives you everything. The immediate access of God. And takes residence in your very heart, your very soul. He occupies you personally, but not just you, but other people as well, so that you collectively become the temple of God. Now, I know that's a lot that I just threw at you, and so I want to end with just a couple of brief final thoughts. Here's what I want to do. I want to end with one implication, one question, and then one story, okay? What's what's one implication of all that? Here's one implication. If you want to know who God is, if you're just curious, searching, trying to explore what you think about all this stuff, or if you're in a position where you're like, I just really want to grow as a Christian. I don't know how to develop more love for God. I don't know how to connect with God. One implication of all this, wherever you are on the spectrum, is this. Jesus seems to say, if you want to connect with God, where where you're going to find him is at the church. Where you're going to find him is in the indwelling uh, community of people called the church. In fact, it's really interesting. In Acts chapter 9, you can read the story later. There's this dude named Saul running around literally hunting down and killing Christians. And at one point, he's on the road to go attack and kill some Christians. And the risen Jesus confronts him, stops him, and says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Isn't that interesting? Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say them. Why are you persecuting them, the church? He says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus so identifies with his people that he says to attack them is to attack me. So, you want to get to know him? Go to them. You want to get to know uh, what God might be like? You have questions about who he is. Does he exist? How can I connect with him? How do I experience him? Where do you find that? Where do you find the answers to that? Where, where God says he's going to be, you're going to find him at the church. That's one implication. Here's one question. Okay, then, how do you find a good one? How do you find, like, a good church? Like I said, especially in Knoxville when there's 8 million churches here. Well, I want to give you just a couple of uh, things to consider. I'm going to give you five quick things to consider on how to find a good church here. Here you go. Here's number one. Does it love the Bible? Is it committed to preaching through all of the Bible, even the parts of the Bible that are weird or hard or uncomfortable? Uh, Is its practice and its theology anchored in and shaped by the Bible? That's, That's one way you can find a good church. Is it committed to believe in the whole Bible? Secondly, 
uh, does it preach the gospel? Meaning, when you go to a church, is your big takeaway, gosh, I'm not doing enough, but I need to do more. I need to try harder, and I need to get more revved up for Jesus and do more stuff. If that's your takeaway, you did not hear the gospel. You hear the gospel when you, when you walk away from a place and you think, man, I am a bigger wreck than I thought I was. But I didn't realize how cherished and forgiven and empowered I am by Jesus himself. Is that your experience? Do they talk about the cross a lot? Do they talk about the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus a lot? Do they preach the gospel, secondly? Third thing is, do they take sin seriously? Like, do they even use that word, sin? Do they talk about the need for forgiveness and repentance? Like, that st- some stuff is actually wrong. That's one way that you'd find that there's a good church. Uh, here's a fourth consideration. Does it have a passion for mercy? Does it have a heart for the lost? Does it care about the poor? Uh, When you go in there, do you experience a warm, inviting, hospitable environment? Or is everything cold and stiff and harsh? And here's the fifth consideration. Do its leaders uh, love and follow Jesus? Meaning, do the leaders regularly talk about their own struggles and their own need for Jesus themselves? Or do you kind of get the impression from the leadership that they've got it all together and the key to life is you just becoming more like them instead of you just going and resting in Jesus? I don't know. Those are five considerations as you think through, I want to show up somewhere. Where do I show up? Well, does it love the Bible? Does it preach the gospel? Does it take sin seriously? Does it have a passion for doing mercy? And do its leaders love and follow Jesus? Lastly, one story. One implication, one question, one story. Here we go. It's actually not even really a story. It's a movie. But it's in the form of a story, because movies are somewhat like stories. So there's this movie called uh, Babette's Feast. It's this old 1980s movie that you probably have never seen, but it is absolutely incredible, and you must see it. It's the story about, basically, it's a picture of a church that has died. A dead, cold really broken church. And it's in this little village in Denmark in which everybody in this little village has all these grudges with each other. Everybody hates each other's guts. Everybody's bitter towards each other. It's just a really nasty situation. The church there doesn't really worship God. They just kind of worship their past, their traditions. And so it is this strict, rigid, legalistic, really uncomfortable church community and a community as a whole that's just really horrible. Well, there are these two sisters in this village that are probably genuine Christians within this village, and they take in this refugee from France named Babette, and everyone in the village is scandalized by this because she's an outsider, and she's French, and so that's extra scandalous, and so they bring her in, everybody's uncomfortable by it, but what Babette begins to do is she begins hoarding animals, it's kind of weird. Like, why is she kind of taking these animals and kind of like gating them off? Uh, she goes on these trips and she's getting different ingredients for food and like different spices and odds and ends. And, and you begin to find out as the story is developing that she is this like world famous 
chef from Paris. And she is preparing to make this giant feast for this village as a thank you for taking her, taking her in. And so that's kind of the climax of the whole movie. She sort of sets this table. She brings several people from the, from the town in, and they all sit down around the table, and nobody's talking to each other, and it's incredibly awkward, and, and no, it's just painful, and everyone hates each other that's sitting at this table. And so she brings out this first round of, like, the best French wine. And everyone kind of reluctantly sips it and tastes it and thinks, this is, this is too much, this is too extravagant, we shouldn't be enjoying this, we shouldn't be drinking this. And then she serves the first round of food. And everybody is blown away by how good it is. And so they start eating, and she brings out a second course that's paired with like a second type of wine. And course after course, wine after wine comes out. And as you see this dinner unfold, the coldness of this community begins to thaw you really see these people transform in front of your eyes where at the, at the beginning of this meal, they wouldn't even look at each other. They weren't even talking to each other. And as you're getting towards the end of the meal, uh, they're laughing with each other. They're telling jokes. Uh, they're, you know, they're cheers, cheersing. They're doing cheers together. They are, they're sharing food with each other. And at the end of the whole thing, they're, they're forgiving each other. Like grudges are, are, are melting away. Uh, and at the, the kind of the climax of the whole thing is they are singing. They sing together and they go out into the town square singing the night away. And that's, that's how it ends. They're so overwhelmed with the grace and the extravagance and the service of this host that it has transformed this dead, bitter community into festive, attractive, warm, beautiful community once again. And that is a picture of the church. The church can grow to become this dull, dead, cold, bitter thing. But the host behind it all the one who is feeding, nourishing, and transforming the church is Jesus himself. Only he is nourishing and feeding the church with himself. And so as a church, we get together to feast upon him, to share him with each other. He is the one that empowers us to be that kind of warm, attractive, vibrant, hospitable community. So here's the question. Don't you want to be a part of that? Don't you want to be a part of a community that looks and feels like that? Well, as the passage says, the way that you do that is you come to him. And as you come to him, he's going to encourage you to show up and be a part of his church, be a part of his community. That's an invitation for you tonight. Let me pray. Father, by your grace, by your very presence, by your mercy, I pray that you would fill us, enable us to feast upon the delicacy and the beauty and the richness of yourself, that we may be so filled and be connected to other people that are so filled in the grace and the love and the mercy of Jesus, that we would become an attractive, warm, hospitable community where people like Anne Lamott would wander through our doors and be changed 
that we would be agents of healing and justice and beauty in our culture and in our neighborhoods. Father, I pray, especially for the people tonight that have experienced the church as cold, rigid, harsh, uninviting, unattractive, that, Father, maybe you would stoke their imaginations and give them a different vision of what the church could be. And so we need your help and we need your grace. Your spirit, I mean, your church needs your love and your grace. Please be gentle. Please be gracious, we pray in Jesus' name.